Well, church, it's my joy to preach now at the beginning of what we call Holy Week. Holy Week, which begins today, Palm Sunday. The the narrative of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Holy Week, which includes this coming Friday, Good Friday, which we will celebrate here at 7.30, where we think about and commemorate his death on the cross. And then Holy Week ends a week from today with Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Holy Week is about the gospel, Christ's life, death, resurrection, the redemptive acts of God, God the Father sending Jesus Christ, God the Son, to live the perfect life, die the sacrificial death, raise the glorious, victorious resurrection, and ultimately ascend into heaven, returning to the glory of his Father for our salvation, for his people's salvation. And so this morning, what we're going to do is read the narrative of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or what we celebrate in the church traditionally as Palm Sunday. The account of Palm Sunday is found in all four of the Gospels. This morning, we're going to read John's account of Palm Sunday. So please turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back on this table. If you don't own one, it's a gift for you. Or you might prefer to just look on with someone next to you. But I want to encourage you, please, follow me as I read the text. Because this is the word of God. And before I read the text, let's pray. That God the Holy Spirit would give us illumination and understanding of these redemptive works of God the Son. Found in Rome in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Are you there yet? John 12, 12 to 19. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come, Father, and would illumine our hearts and minds, and you would save the unsaved, that you would encourage the saved. Lord, that you would build your church by your word, by your spirit, that we would come away, Lord, loving you more, seeing you in greater detail, greater relief, and being more amazed by the grace that you've given us when you, oh, mighty God, became a man, took on the form of flesh with a purpose to die for our sins, raised from the dead for our forgiveness and ascended to heaven. Oh, Lord, teach us afresh. We're listening with excited, ready hearts and ears and eyes. Let us see, Lord, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together, church, Romans chapter 12. I'm reading in verse 12. Excuse me. John chapter 12, I'm reading in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd 
that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The History Channel aired a segment on 9-11 And in this one-hour segment, which was entitled, The Man Who Predicted 9-11, they focused on the life of Rick Rescorla. Rick Rescorla. And so long before September 11th, 2001, Rick Rescorla, the 62-year-old head of security for Morgan Stanley Bank, had developed an evacuation plan for the bank. The bank's offices were situated high up on Tower 2, the South Tower of the World Trade Center, and Rescola was convinced that Osama bin Laden would fly jet airplanes into those towers to destroy them. So this plan that he devised was very detailed and hugely unpopular, I might add, with the Morgan Stanley staff, and it was a plan to evacuate everybody in an orderly fashion. And many of the staff thought that Rescola was crazy. Well, on September 11, 2001, when American Airlines Flight 11 hit the World Trade Center at North Tower, Tower 1, at 8.46 a.m., Rick Rescorla ignored the building's officials' advice to stay put and began the orderly evacuation of all 2,800 Morgan Stanley employees. They were spread out on 20 floors of the World Trade Center, Tower 2. And he organized 1,000 of their employees who were in World Trade Center, Tower 5. During the evacuation, Rescorla had a bullhorn. He reminded everybody, be proud to be an American. And while they were evacuating, he sang God Bless America and other songs to keep everybody calm during the evacuation. Rescorla had most of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 employees well out of the towers, safely evacuated right about the time that World Trade Center Tower 2, the South Tower, was hit by United Airlines Flight 175 at 9.07 a.m. After reaching safety, Rescorla turned around, went back into the building to rescue others. He was last seen heading up the stairs of the 10th floor of the collapsing World Trade Center Tower 2. His remains were never found. Rick Rescorla entered the World Trade Center Towers to save people from physical death. Jesus entered Jerusalem to save people from spiritual death that leads to physical death and eternal destruction. Rick did not know that he would die when he entered the World Trade Center Tower. Jesus knew full well that he would die when he entered Jerusalem. Jesus understood that he was born for this, that Jesus was born to die, the title of our message this morning. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant king. But that is not what the Jews wanted. They didn't want a servant king. They wanted a warrior king. They wanted a political king. See, their greatest need, according to them, was freedom or salvation from the political bondage of Rome. They didn't understand that their greatest need was spiritual salvation from the bondage of sin. 
They were very, very much anxious to be out from the iron boot of Roman domination of their nation, but they missed the fact that their greatest need was to be out from under the iron boot of sin's domination of their souls. And may I just appeal to you right now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord, first of all, thank you for coming. But if this is not a priority to you, if perhaps you're here looking for something else, people come to church for many different reasons, thank you for coming. There are many wonderful things you will find here. But what's primary, the number one thing, is to understand your need for a Savior. That's what Jesus came to do, is to save us. But the people back then didn't understand it either. As a matter of fact, I invite you to turn your attention again to verses 12 and 13. We see that the people are actually celebrating the arrival of a political warrior king. Look at it again with me in your text. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now remember, they had just heard that Jesus Christ had raised someone from the dead. So he had rock star appeal right now. He could deliver. He had some power. And they were hoping that that power to raise someone from the dead would translate into power of overthrowing Rome, militarily, politically. That was their hope. They came from all over the empire. and They had heard this news, and they were talking it up, and they had gathered to celebrate this power. And in verse 13a, we see that they come with what? Palm branches. Hence, Palm Sunday. Now, palm branches to you and me mean one thing. They mean South Florida. They mean sun. They mean vacation to someone that's been in Boston this last winter with however many feet of snow. They mean relaxation, not to Israel. Palm branches to an Israeli in the first century meant the same thing as the bald eagle and the stars and stripes mean to Americans today. It was a fiercely nationalistic symbol. Palm branches was the symbol that the Maccabees used in 164 BC when they retook and rededicated the temple. Palm branches were on the Jewish coins in their revolt against the Romans some 37 years later. Listen, just like the eagle, just like the stars and stripes, just like the national anthem at the Olympics stirs up this fervent nationalistic pride in an American, palm branches, my friends, testify to deep nationalistic fervor among the Palm Sunday pilgrims in Jerusalem. Listen, they weren't just saying Hosanna, like in a religious way. No, they were saying, Hosanna, deliver us from these stinking Romans. This was a political rally, every bit as much as a religious one. And after all, isn't that what God had promised us? Isn't that what Messiah was going to do? throw out these impure Romans and reconstitute the vibrant Israel's government and nation. That word Hosanna in verse 13, 12, really it has sort of a a double meaning, but it's like a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase that we find in Psalm 118, 25. So you see in verse 13b where they say Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that word Hosanna really is a transliteration of the word we see in in English here, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Hosanna means 
Save us, we pray. Give salvation now. But they weren't thinking about it like we think about it. We think about it in religious terms. Hosanna, it's a churchy term. They were thinking about it in military political terms. Hosanna, save us from this political tyranny. And save us now. They failed to see that their true need was for spiritual salvation from sin's rule. And they thought their greatest need was from a political salvation from Rome's rule. And notice in the second part of verse 13, they go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This reference, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes right from Psalm 118, verse 26. And the reason that's so important is this. Psalm 118 was one of the halal psalms. The halal psalms. And these halal psalms were sung by Jewish pilgrims when they were coming up and ascending up to Jerusalem on a hill and ascending up into the temple. And it was tradition to sing them during one of the three great feasts as Jews from all over the Roman kingdom returned to Jerusalem to celebrate. So every Jew knew these psalms. They had memorized these psalms. But these psalms had now taken a political tone because the reference here is is the reference to messiah in psalm 118 26 and and the reference is actually they didn't understand this it's to a suffering messiah a servant messiah a servant king but they didn't get that they just saw it as a reference to a conquering king a military king a political king as a matter of fact look back at your text what does the very end of verse 13 say what do they add to this Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last words of verse 13 are what? Even the king of Israel. That's not in the original text. That was an addition for a first century Jew to the halal psalm. Why? Because even though it wasn't in the original text, it does help us understand the crowd's understanding of the text. Jesus came as king of Israel. Therefore, we're booting the king of Rome, Caesar, out. They wanted to reestablish the kingdom and the, ki- and the, and the reign of, of Israel, this son of David, this one who would come like David to rule not only Israel, but knock the enemies of Israel out to reconstitute the country, Israel, what we know today, Israel. That's how they saw it. So they celebrated Jesus as this warrior political king. They celebrated the wrong Jesus. They celebrated a warrior, a warrior political Jesus. They failed to understand that Jesus came to free them from spiritual bondage, from the rule of sin and death, not the rule of Rome. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus understood fully well who he was and why he entered Jerusalem. Notice what happens here. Verse 14. This is the part that I think the disciples didn't fully understand until after he was dead, resurrected, and ascended. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. So John the Apostle is writing this down, and he's quoting now, to describe this scene, Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, who's speaking of Messiah. The Old Testament's filled with references to Messiah. So that he's speaking of Messiah here, and look at this is what he says. You'll notice in your Bibles that's probably got different type on it because it's an Old Testament quote, Zechariah nine nine here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's 
cult. See, here we're seeing a description of a king who is coming in peace, a king who drives out fear, a king whose ways are of mercy and gentleness and forgiveness. Jesus was declaring himself in this action, the servant king who would come the first time to pay the penalty for our sins, your sin and mine. He would do this on the cross. See, Jesus is coming to fulfill what Scripture said about the Messiah, but people didn't understand it. They didn't get he would be suffering first. They didn't understand it. They should have. They should have. Because, see, going back to Psalm 118, the the very psalm that they were singing here, the last verse of it is definitely speaking of this. Look at verse 27 with me. Psalm 118, 27. They're singing this psalm. They're using this psalm to try to promote Jesus as a political king, but they misunderstood verse 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The festal sacrifice. Remember what uh, festival this was. What was it? Passover. And what were they commemorating? The exodus of Israel... 1,500 years earlier, out of Egypt into the promised land. And what did God provide for his people on that night of their exodus? A lamb. A lamb. The festal cords, binding the cords to the horns of the altar. 1,500 years earlier, God provided a lamb, the lamb of God, the Passover lamb. And that lamb was slaughtered. And the blood of that lamb was put on the doorposts of their houses. And when the wrath of God, the death angel, came through Egypt and killed all the firstborn, it passed over the homes of the Jews, God's people. And Jesus said, I'm coming as that lamb. I'm coming as that Messiah. I'm coming as that servant. I'm coming as a servant king Yes, to rule your life, but to die for you. Because the wrath of God is on you apart from me. They missed it. They missed it. May we not miss it. May we not miss it. See, this is why Jesus knew what he was doing when he came into Jerusalem. Unlike Rick Rascorla, who didn't know he was going to die going up to that tower, Jesus knew because he knew, he understood, he is the fulfillment of the Lamb of God. And no passage to me, captures Jesus' mindset, what Jesus was thinking on that day when the crowds were going crazy, ready to anoint him president of the United States. Finally, a godly president. Messiah, godly. Finally, a ruler that's going to kick the Romans out. Finally, someone is going to deliver us from Rome and its political tyranny. And Jesus was not swept up by that at all. You know what Jesus was thinking? Scripture tells us. Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul, writing Philippians 2, I believe he's describing Jesus' mindset that day on Palm Sunday as he's walking through the throngs, ready to make him king. Paul writes the following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, servant king. Listen, Jesus was not emptied of his divinity. That's heresy. Jesus was emptied of the glory that he shared with the Father. He says, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going from heaven to earth. God, the Son, becomes man and comes to a decidedly non-glorious place. That's what he emptied himself of. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he's walking and he's humbling himself and he understands they are praising me right now, but in a few short days they will be crucifying me. And I'm saying, Lord, I'm obeying you even to death, even death on a cross. And it was not easy because on that garden of Gethsemane, just a few days later, he's going to be sweating blood. It was so hard. He did it for you and me. If you are God's people, Hallelujah. Hosanna, save us. If you know what you need to be saved from. Not your present problems. Not from unemployment. You need to be saved from the wrath of God. The death angel's coming. Jesus came, humbled himself, obeyed death, death on a cross to save us. Oh, this is my appeal to us. This is my appeal to you, dear unbeliever, this morning. The mercy of God is here. And he is merciful to whom he will be merciful. I understand that. But I pray, receive God's mercy in Christ. It's interesting. It's interesting. This passage ends with such rich irony. Jump down to verse 19. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, let me set the scene for you. They were freaking out. Here's what they said. You see that you're gaining nothing. They're just screaming at each other. Our plans are going awry. You're gaining nothing. This isn't working. Look. And then one of them says this. The world has gone after him. 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 You know what the Pharisees are saying without knowing what they're saying, without believing in Jesus? They're saying the second part of Philippians 2. Put it up there. Therefore, verse 9. Therefore, verse 9. What's the therefore, therefore? It's therefore to tell us about verses 5 to 8 as a result of his obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God, the Father. The Pharisees were right. The whole world had come to Jerusalem to watch Jesus' coronation through his death on the cross. Jews from the entire Roman Empire came. It was a big deal. Josephus, a historian of that era, said that Jerusalem's population probably swelled to over 2 million people from every nation for this Passover celebration. So the whole world was witness to Jesus' coronation on the cross. What Zechariah wrote in 9.10 is true. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And the Pharisees were right. The whole world is going after him. Absolutely right. You see, this Messiah isn't just your Messiah, Israel. He is king of Israel, but he's king of all the world. He is the savior of, of Israel, but he's the savior of all the world, of his elect, of his people. That's what Jesus was saying. And his rule is established through the gospel preaching of his word. That's why the gospel is central. That's why this word is central. His re- he is ruling and reigning as his word is preached. Don't you remember his last words on earth, the Great Commission? He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, my subjects, my people. 
teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to do in just a minute. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Jesus rules and reigns over all the nations. You know, all the nations were represented there in Jerusalem on that day. You know what I love about Palm Vista? All the nations are represented here. I mean, just our new members class last week. A, a wonderful woman of God whose, whose, whose mom is Bahamian, whose dad is Haitian, Venezuelan couple, and the wife has ancestry back into Eastern Europe. Uh, so many of us are such a mixture here. We have the United Nations at Palm Vista. It's, I love South Florida. It's what makes South Florida crazy and why some people leave, and it's what attracts me to South Florida. Throw me into the craziness. Throw me into the nations. I want to see the word of God prosper here. We have nothing in common but the gospel. And that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. And I can just imagine John, who wrote this account, maybe in the 40s, 50s, not exactly sure, earlier in his life. But then he wrote another account at the end of his life when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He was an old man at this point, 70, 80. I don't know how old he is, but there's a distance of time between the two. And listen to him writing about another crowd and another throng that are waving palm branches. Only this one is in heaven. Revelation 7. Here's your Palm Sunday. Eternally. John writing, same author that wrote John 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. You know he had to be thinking about that Palm Sunday years earlier. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, the lamb. Not the lamb walking through Jerusalem about to be crucified, but the resurrected, glorified lamb of God, Jesus. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. They're crying out Hosanna, but for the right reason. They understood full well what they needed to be saved from. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Mind you, Paul or John is in an island exiled, probably poor, in poor health. It's not looking very good, but he sees heaven. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen! Notice the exclamation point. You can shout in church, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen! Friends, John saw this heavenly vision of the Lamb, the King, ruling on his throne. And don't you know that the very words spoken by the multitude in heaven reminded him of the words spoken by the multitude in the crowd on that Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry. Both of them had palm branches. Here's the difference. The heavenly multitude celebrated the right Jesus. They celebrated the servant King, the Lamb, who was slain to liberate us from sin and death. They celebrated the servant king who gained access to his throne in heaven through the cross and was vindicated in his resurrection. They worshipped him. Will you this morning? It's my prayer that you will be in that multitude, dear friend, that worships the lamb before the throne, clothed in white robes, made white by his blood, with palm branches in our hands, declaring to Jesus, 
You are my Lord. I bow my knee to you. That passage in Philippians is true. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Jesus is Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. But friends, I have to warn you one warning before we transition here. Revelation speaks of another group. That other group is found in Revelation 6. This group refused to bow their knees to Jesus on this earth. They will one day, but they refuse to on this earth. I pray you not be in this group because this is how this group ends up on the final day. Revelation 6, 15 and 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. All right, that makes sense. And from the wrath of a lamb. The wrath of the lamb? Have you ever seen a lamb? In the natural, you don't flee from the wrath of the lamb, but you do flee from the wrath of this lamb. For this lamb is a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 17, for the great day of the wrath is coming and who can stand? You can stand on that day if you bow this day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will bow the hearts and knees and lives and minds of those here that would not know you. And if that's you right now, just just cry out to him. I'd love to talk to you about it after the service, or maybe someone you came with and pray with you. But Lord, I pray that you would cause their hearts to bow, that you would open their eyes to this truth and see your mercy. It is a severe mercy. It is a holy mercy. You are just, and yet you justify the unjust who trust in Jesus, who took the just penalty of our sins on his body on the cross. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of God's people. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And for the believers here, the vast majority, Lord, that we'd be freshly amazed by grace. That our hearts would, would emerge encouraged by this gospel truth, this Palm Sunday. With visions of heaven dancing in our minds in times that are less than heavenly on this earth. Whatever it may be, sickness, financial need, Broken relationships. Oh God, comfort your people with your word here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.